You're listening to Trek FM. Hello and welcome to episode 16 of Commentary, Trek Stars, a show which deals with the work of Star Trek creators outside of Star Trek. I'm Mike. I'm Mike. And today we are looking at uh, Nicholas Meyer as an author, part 7, with his final novel, The Canary Trainer. And we're joined by a very special guest, Augie Alexi of Centuries and Sleuths Bookstore in Forest Park, Illinois. How's it going, Augie? Very good, thank you. Thank you very much for, uh, for joining us, we really appreciate it. Appreciate your asking. Now, just for people who aren't familiar with, with your bookstore and everything, I mean, it is a really cool bookstore. Can you uh, describe it? Well, we specialize in history, mystery, and biography, and that's intentional. I did a business plan and all that, and in reality, if the surveys I did come, didn't come back the way I wanted, I didn't want to open up a general bookstore. But also, we have signings, we have discussion groups, but we also have performances. We've done mystery plays written by members of the Mystery Discussion Group, and also we've done Meeting of Minds, similar to Steve Allen's program from the 70s, and actually got his permission when he was here to use that name. So, oh, wow. Yeah, it's, um, as I like to say, we make mysteries and history come alive at our store. And you won the Raven Award from the Mystery Writers of America, what, yeah. like last year, two years uh, ago? It was uh, 2011, 2011, yes. Which recognizes outstanding achievement in the mystery field outside of the realm of creative writing. Yeah, right? I'm very proud of that. I mean, I was surprised and pleased. You know, it's not just people from Chicago, which I appreciate voting on it. It was, again, it was a national thing. That's pretty That's pretty amazing, but well-deserved at the same uh, time. Thank you. So uh, you're a pretty big Sherlockian, is that correct? Oh, yeah. It sounds like you got into to Sherlock Holmes a, a little late. Yes, in fact... In high school, in our reader, we read the Redheaded League, and I don't know I just wasn't impressed at that time. And then maybe on Sundays on WGN television, you'd watch the Sherlock Holmes episode. So I was kind of interested, but it wasn't until I would say post college uh, that both my wife and I got interested in it. In fact, probably what actually stimulated that interest was uh, Nicholas Meyer's first book. The 7% Solution, and then after I read that, then I went back into Sherlock Holmes' books actually written by Doyle. He was kind of an inspiration, you know, for going back and reading the originals. Cool. And now, just because this is a, a Star Trek show, we always have to ask, like, what is your relationship with Star Trek? Are you a fan? Have you seen casual episodes? What's the, Oh, you know? no. I, I, I didn't really catch up on Star Trek. Like, I was in... Uh, dance band at my high school and we played i think it was on what friday yeah, it was it was friday, friday evenings nights. and yeah. so i was usually a band back my friends would tell me about it but it wasn't again till i was probably post-college that i really got hooked on the original episodes and then it went on and my son who's now 28 really got into um the next generation and that's when i started watching it and not so much the third the third series, but the second generation, I thought they really put a lot of thought and ideas into that. 
Okay, well, well, today's book is is The Canary Trainer, which is the third uh, Nicholas Meyer uh, Sherlock Holmes novel. And uh, just to give a brief synopsis of it, um, it's uh, kind of a crossover with Phantom of the Opera. Uh, it takes place during the, the Great Hiatus, is that correct? Mm-hmm, correct. Okay. And um, shortly after the 7% solution, 7% solution it's kind of a, a sequel to that, correct. in a sense. And the world, at this point, thinks that Holmes is dead. Can, can you explain the great hiatus for people? Um, well, um, it was thought that he died with Moriarty falling off uh, the cliff at Reichenbach Falls. However, uh, through uh, his uh, knowledge of the martial arts, he was able to toss Moriarty over the cliff into the falls, and he survived. However he realized that he hadn't rounded up all the criminals, so he went into hiding and um, for two reasons, to see if he could uh, capture the surviving members of Moriarty's gang. Uh, since they would think he was dead, he'd have an, uh, the advantage there. But also, he, the term hiatus means relaxation, uh, going back, thinking about things. There have been several books written about what he did to um, look at life from a different perspective, but it always came up that he had this ability, and no matter how he tried to um, stay away from it, it would it would drive him in terms of his involvement in the Phantom of the Opera, in the the murders and threats that went on, and naturally we know what Sherlock Holmes thinks of uh, ghosts and demons and that. And so he's always yeah. looking for the re- rational, you know, yeah. solution to it. And that's his kind of major role in in this uh, setting, in this story. In terms of the, the canon, um, were there any stories that took place inside the, the Great Hiatus or not? Or no. Did he, he never no, returned to it at all. That's just, that's just he, would, it. he would talk. They would reflect back on his uh, becoming... An Arctic explorer and yeah, uh, there were mentions Sigerson time in hiding, yeah, yeah, but and they Sigerson, don't get it. Yeah, that is brought up. Yeah, they don't. And, and in fact, that's his name yeah. uh, when he's in in Paris through this episode. To those who mm-hmm. don't know him, he goes by us uh, Sigerson, and that's how they know him. And he takes up the violin is a professional performer. Now I know that he always could. <laughs> I, I I know that the seven percent solution kind of changes the canon. It is not canon. It, it, it gives a different explanation to mm-hmm. why he, he left. Or right, in his sense of why Moriarty is a kind of a threat to him. And, and this, this book, obviously, being from the same uh, writer, is, is a sequel to, to that. Mm-hmm. But if you were to take out the 7% solution and just look at uh, the Canary Trainer um, in terms of what is canon, would it still work to some extent? Um... I don't think it violates anything from the canon. Canon, it, it, it would almost be considered, like in biblical studies, apocryphal. Mm-hmm. You know, something that's out there, it fills a gap that nothing's been, you know, written about. So he he has a free hand, and I think he did. I think he did a very good job in telling the story and the character. Mm-hmm. Um, it's amazing though for a person who kind of knows it, uh, and I think it's good for the novice to have it. But the footnotes are just, I mean, throughout the book, uh, Nicholas Myers has these footnotes explaining it to the person who, who, ha- who hadn't read the canon 
before then, which would it was helpful to me when I was reading the Seven Percent Solution. Yeah, but no, no, this is it's a very well done book, and it what I would say it could be a standalone. Yeah, I mean he refers back to his experiences with Freud, but it's not necessary. You've read that to appreciate this. Well, you could also you could also imagine this book not having ever referred to him as Sherlock Holmes. Yeah. And just let the reader go, why is there this super detective who speaks English pretending to be a French violinist? And you could infer that it's Sherlock Holmes just because it makes sense, which I think is an interesting alternative approach. Mm-hmm. And considering and it, Nicholas Myers sort of – it's not a binary thing. He doesn't like eliminate things from the from the canon. He no. sort of like attenuates them slightly, he brings them up and brings them down and changes things so that he can slip in other bits – and in a way, that's probably really necessary because there were a lot of continuity errors in the original canon. Oh, gosh. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it's almost to the point where, like, you, you could see, you know, Conan Doyle saying, get a life, you know? <laughs> <laughs> so, okay, this, in, in just, just in terms of what the actual story is here, uh, basically, yeah, the world thinks that Sherlock Holmes is dead, and he, so he goes to, to Paris and tries to reinvent himself as a violinist. And um, then he gets dragged into the mystery of the Phantom of the Opera. What 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 did you think about the book in general? What- I liked it. I enjoyed it. And um, though I had read Seven Percent Solution, and was it the West End? West End Horror. Horror. Yeah. I don't know why um, I I hadn't read this one, so it was my first time reading it in okay. preparation for this. But I liked his technique. I liked his setting, his explanation, and I think. I would like to see a real blueprint or floor plan of the opera house, but also it's more than the opera house because, as he explains to you, it's the sewer system connected, mm-hmm. yeah. you know, to the opera house that gives um, the monster, the phantom, the ghost, whatever, his ability to elude, um, elude people, and have such control over the runnings of the of the opera house. Yeah. What about you, Max? Did you, you like the book? Oh yes, quite a bit. I've uh, you know I I grew up with Phantom of the Opera, you know, sort of on the you know CD player in the kitchen uh, Sunday mornings because my mom was really into the soundtrack, and I mean, that was when I was like eight, and that that remained a thing. You know, people and girls especially would be really into Phantom of the Opera, and I had to go, yeah, it's cool the way he has a mask and sings and. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> and and so like when whenever I see like an incarnation of Phantom of the Opera, I'm like I, I can tolerate. I'm always like, oh, that's not bad. And this one, I was like, I was like, oh, I get it. It's cool. <laughs> yeah. It's like a creepy underground lair with all kinds of awesome stairways and secret doors. Oh, that makes sense. I understand the appeal of that. How come they don't make the story from his point of view? That would be much more interesting than the girl's point of view, which is kind of boring. <laughs> um. It's 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 a very interesting take on it, and it made the the phantom concept work way better than in the you know the the play version or or even the book. I mean, I read the book at some point, and i i did not I did not lock into that with any sort of enthusiasm. What about you, Augie? Are, are you a, a fan of Phantom of the Opera and any of its incarnations? Um, I, I liked it more watching the movies. I I never I've never read the book. Mm-hmm. But uh, seeing the different versions of how um, the Phantom got into that condition uh, where he needed the mask, um, who the Phantom actually is in the setting of the, of the whole story. Um, but I just 
because it it was creepy, you know, and you've got this spooky sing, singing going on, or at least for me, I considered it spooky. And, you know, the voice from beyond or whatever telling people what to do and a threat. And it's what's kind of peculiar about it, too, is you're you're sympathetic to him, but, you know, he's probably a good man gone bad by conditions, circumstances. They do play pretty heavily on the, 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 the mystique of the character and and the allure of that mysterious, dangerous person. And and there's a, there are several references throughout. Anytime anyone talks about Family Hammer, they talk about you know Beauty and the Beast and how when the Beast turns into the Prince, you're like, oh, he's boring now. <laughs> And 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 my feeling is that the Phantom of the Opera is a serial murderer and is really you should really capture that guy. And if you can't catch him, just kill him because he's incredibly dangerous psychopath. Uh-huh. I don't have any sympathy for that guy. Really, he's okay. out of his mind. Yeah, he lives under an opera house. Kind of bipolar, you know. <laughs> I mean, especially with his relationships at the beginning with Christine. Yeah. You know? I mean, uh, to me, to me, this is the kind of guy. This is the kind of you know, like he's a fan of this genre so much <laughs> that he lies in wait underneath a, an exhibiting house for that thing. I mean, this is like, I mean, this is this is a guy who lives on the Enterprise set, killing characters that come in, <laughs> so 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 that he can prevent them from being new uh, members of the cast. And uh, from that point of view, I'm on board with his cause. <laughs> I I was not really familiar with with Phantom of the Opera at all. My, my only exposure to it, I think, was through the uh, the Joel Schumacher movie that came out a few years ago, the adaptation of the of the the opera. Yeah. Um, so I actually like it, after I started reading the book, I had to go you know online and look up like the the plot and the, it, basically I was trying to figure out the the various characters and see which ones were from the uh, book, the other book, Phantom Almost of the Opera. Almost all of them. The, I guess here's my question, which I don't know whether or not either of you can answer, but does it fit into the the book's continuity or, or the continuity of Phantom of the Opera as we you know, sort of know it? Well, because, again, I haven't read the book and I've seen so many movies, I think it just adds to the, if you want to call that a genre, you know, the Phantom genre, it, you know, who he thinks the Phantom is, and why he's that way. So I think it, it enhances it. Okay. But I know, kind of getting a little bit off the track, but what I think, like you looked up information on the Phantom of the Opera, I think that's the quality of a writer that uses another classic and puts it in with it. If he gets you interested in en- enough to go out of your way to find out about the other topic that you hadn't read about, I'm going to name another person that did that for me was Laurel Estelman when he mm-hmm. did Sherlock Holmes versus Dracula. Mm-hmm. Um, I hadn't read Dracula at all, but he just took Sherlock Holmes and put him in Bram Stoker's story, mm-hmm. which led me to eventually read Bram Stoker's Dracula, which I think is a fantastic book. But again, what I'm saying, what Nicholas Myers does is he helps spread reading, which, you know, as a bookseller, you're kind of interested in, but he gets you to go and f- he writes it well enough to give you interest in it. Infected you with literary curiosity. Mm-hmm. Right. Very good. That's the word. And and the, the, the other, the flip side of that, which he also was able to do at the same time, was uh, 
make it so that you didn't have to, like if I didn't look up that stuff, if I didn't know anything about Phantom of the Opera, it, I still wouldn't have been lost. You Correct. Know? I, I, I would have totally. He gave you enough information. Right. To... Yeah. He, he used it as part of his story without you having to read Phantom of the Opera, which I think is also a, a pretty good skill. And to be able to pull off both is mm-hmm. very impressive. I think I can answer the question. Yeah. If this is fit. Mm-hmm. By making him the conductor, he like like Meyer's attempting to say that Leroux's book was uh, his attempt to understand what occurred and mm-hmm. document the events, and and from his perspective, I mean, he had some he had some information and he had some missing information. So the various points of view are sort of you know the Rashomon version of the Phantom of the Opera. Yeah, they're all technically accurate depictions of what occurred, but they've all got flaws because they're all, from a certain point of view, it involves a certain amount of guessing what happened mm-hmm. behind the various closed doors. And that, that actually makes sense. That's similar to what he's doing with with Holmes as well, by, you know, talking about how, I mean, his his stories really are, are you know, designed as if they're written by Watson. He basically says that, you know, some of what Watson wrote was fiction, you know? Well, by muddying the 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 honesty of the characters, you can make the legitimacy of the events uh, increase. It's like by 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 including the author as part of the canon, you're allowing yourself to uh, explain away inconsistencies. Mm-hmm. I, I personally did like the book quite a bit as well. Um, I, I think in some ways it was the 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 best written of. Um, of the three, you know, and not necessarily the best, but I mean, we've talked about this before, like what he was doing with, with 7% solution was really interesting because he was trying to fix problems in terms of continuity. Um, but in some ways I, I think that this is like the, the, the better crafted story. It, it, it works, I think on its own more than, than the other two do. Now, I know that there's this sort of uh, the, the bookend um, framing device with, with Watson, but for the most part, this is a story which is told by Holmes. Now, I know that's been done in the past. It, 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 where has it been done in the Primarily in the in the last bow, the post-Reichenbach Falls adventures. Actually, okay. Reichenbach Falls fits in with that. The, the, the final problem, the entire scenario is basically yeah, his- Watson... Explaining what Holmes said to him, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. even when it's a note. But most people didn't think it was the best of Doyle's editing. You know. Do you think that um, Meyer successfully captured Holmes's voice as a writer? You know. Yes. Yes. Of course, the other thing that that does is um, essentially take Watson out of the story. How, what What do you think about that? Because I, I found that it, it really kind of changed. Um, the, the the dynamic of the story for me, you know, I mean, I, I I thought it was still interesting, but it was it was a lot different. What what do you guys think about uh, Holmes without Watson? Well, as a practical thing, don't you? What would he do, What would he have done with Watson in this? Uh, that's true. I think primarily the reason for keeping Watson out of the story is that it makes the character of Sherlock Holmes. It sort of makes him too large a thing to include into the Phantom of the Opera story without. Dislodging a bunch of other components. Sure, he I mean, needs you can, to be yeah. sort of undercover in that scenario, and yeah. yeah, you can have like you could say that the guy running around in that one scene in the background of Family Opera was Sherlock Holmes, mm-hmm. but you can't say that guy running around in the background wearing the deerstalker with his friend with the cane. <laughs> that was a violinist. 
Cooper is actually Sherlock Holmes. That's just too much. Yeah, no, I, I agree that it definitely wasn't appropriate for this story. I guess um, what what I was trying to get at was like n- not even necessarily in just this story, but how do you think the character of Holmes, you know, or at least his portrayal of, of the character of Holmes changes when Watson isn't there? Because to me, like when I read a, a Holmes story with Watson. Since it's from Watson's perspective, Holmes almost seems like this sort of uh, omniscient presence in a way, you know, like he knows all. And, you know, I mean, there are obviously times where, you know, he's figuring stuff out, but you don't have that sort of internal monologue where he he has doubts. He is trying to figure things out, you know, and, and he's, he's really wrestling with what's going on. I, I guess- kind of think I understand it that we need Watson in it to represent us. He not, knows not as even, much as no. Not, not even that, really. It's more like um, when Watson it, it represents us. There's sort of like a distance. Like we're 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 looking from we're looking at Holmes, and we see him. He, he's almost in some ways sort of put on a pedestal, you know, and where it's like, wow. He, because he, through Watson's eyes, Sherlock Holmes is a person who has a lot of weird ideas. Through Sherlock Holmes' eyes. It's a, a mess of information and a maze of facts. Which he's trying to figure out. Right. So, and it's so like, we can't be presented with what he's thinking about because it's ridiculous. Right. Like, like, so we're presented with what Watson thinks. Mm-hmm. So, so you've got Watson who's saying like, wow, look at how, how amazing Holmes is for figuring this stuff out. Whereas when it's Holmes, you actually internally you know, are with him while he figures it all out. Mm-hmm. You know, and it's... I don't know, a different I think dynamic. Both, I, I think they, there's a place for both of them. Oh, yeah, but for sure. Another different interpretation between a performance in the book is um, the Musgrave ritual. Because the Musgrave rich, ritual happened before Watson. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And Watson was relating it. But then they put it in the, in the episode, an episode with Jeremy Brett, and they do it kind of neat. Uh, uh, neatly, they, you know, Watson is telling the story, and after he was been told the story by Holmes, and he's saying this is how he's putting his his facts together about how he figured out that the butler was buried under, or not buried, trapped in this uh, pit with the 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 stone covering it, and that. I mean, he's like. He's explaining to you from his experience with Holmes how Holmes thinks. Mm-hmm. How do you feel that these books stack up to other uh, interpretations of of Holmes, like outside of of uh, Doyle? In terms, I think, of, in terms I think of they're both. very they're very well done. Mm-hmm. I appreciate them. I mean, they're not Doyle, but you know, that doesn't mean they're not bad. They're they're different, and they bring something else to your literary table mm-hmm. and that I, I like people taking the challenge and um, even if they're not successful I'd rather have them try yeah. than not try like in terms of the film stuff Jeremy Brett you've got Jeremy Brett Robert Downey Jr. you know the, the new uh, Sherlock series with Benedict Cumberbatch mm-hmm. what, what do you consider to be the, the top or what do you consider to be the best and what do you consider to be the most faithful to Doyle well, probably the BBC, in spite of the Cumber, Cumberbatch mm-hmm. yeah. episodes, are probably uh, most Sherlockians appreciate that because they've done their homework. Mm-hmm. It's modern, 
But what else would you think Holmes would, if he was living in the 21st century? Of course he'd have a cell phone. Yeah. Of course he'd have these capabilities. And his thinking, and, and he isn't the most pleasant person to be around. <laughs> One of my favorite ones, and there's all kinds of holes in it, my wife, Christopher Plummer, when he played in um, Murder by Decree about Jack the Ripper, and it had uh, James Mason played Watson. Now, I thought he was one of the best Watsons I'd ever, ever seen. His The time, his age wasn't appropriate to that time, but he was an excellent, you know, Watson. Um, and my wife thought, again, Sherlock Holmes was too sentimental in that one, especially when the things are happening to Annie Crook, you know, in, yeah. the, in Insane Asylum. I enjoyed that one because it took in probably my two favorite interests. I'm not, I was going to say favorite people, favorite interests, <laughs> Jack the Ripper and Sherlock Holmes. Your store was open when this one came out, Canary Trainer. Uh, do you remember what the, the reaction was of Sherlockians to, like, the return of Nicholas Meyer? Oh, after? very enthusiastic. Yeah. And also, too, the cleverness of um, the title. Because mm-hmm. usually when you think of a canary, you're thinking of Chicago gangsters maybe or hard-boiled canaries, a squealer. Mm-hmm. You know, where this is I, – I thought it was a clever – and I don't I, – I, I would be interested to see if it was ever used prior to this referring to uh, the Phantom of the Opera. Mm-hmm. But I think – you know, and it kind of throws you off. But then when you, you think about it and you look at it and maybe you start reading it, oh, yeah, I could see that. Um, in, in terms of where this fits into to Meyer's career, yeah, it was uh, written in, in 1993, which was uh, 12 years after Confessions of a Homing Pigeon, and um, it, which was his last book. Uh, he basically stopped uh, writing novels in, in that time period in order to focus on his, his movie career. Um, it was two years after um, his, his last Star Trek movie, Star Trek VI, The Undiscovered Country. So um, I guess maybe he just wanted a a a break from movies and and went back to to books i i don't know I, it's it's strange because aside from his memoirs which he wrote a couple of years ago um this is the last book he he ever wrote so not that he's been making a lot of movies these days either but so any final thoughts augie i enjoy it i keep looking forward to more stories like this and also it's it's so thrilled when i get a younger person here, maybe when I say younger, I mean 11 or 12, and they haven't been exposed to any of the Hound of the Baskervilles movies, and you tell them, read the Hound of the Baskervilles. It's got everything a young person could want, and if they've got a brilliant imagination, they'll do better than any of the movies they've made. And I include Basil Rathbone and Nigel Brutes, which to me, and also the one that Baker did, um, was pretty accurate but baker does not look like my image of sherlock holmes <laughs> but just i mean i like people writing like him and letting your imagination take flight but you actually have real things that you know like the opera house you can yeah. see you can go to a book and see what it looks like okay now i can i can picture it you know um, yeah but I, I think that that's a great thing where you you investigate further and you discover that like the reality is even more bizarre and creepy and weird and interesting than the actual than the fiction. Mm-hmm. Whereas Hunter the Baskervilles, I mean, by the end of that story, I'm like, what? There are no monsters. 
Yeah, well, yeah, okay. But it, it's in the... Come on, guys. <laughs> no, no, but I mean, I just appreciate his writing. I hope he does more, but he's done He's done pretty well with the three Sherlockian ones I've read and also the movies, especially like we were talking about um, uh, Time After Time. Yeah. And the filming, I don't know if he had to do with the filming, but my most enjoyable part of that, and I actually think of it in terms of reality, when you have the main character sitting in the time machine and he's sitting right across the street from a dress shop and it's got his bay window looks at it and you're seeing the woman, the dummy, change, you know, the clothes clothes are changing to the period. You actually saw things changing right before your eyes, the bombing of London, Mm -hmm. you know, and then he's going forward in that. Just a small segment of a whole film but it's something I will never, never forget, yeah. the way he did that. Yeah. Well, what about you, Max? Final thoughts on the, the book? Like I mentioned earlier, but like, uh, you know, growing up with, you know, uh, women and girls always talking about family opera and being a guy who does not find it particularly compelling, um, it was really nice to, you know, to read a story with about that character and be in that world and get, like, why it's exciting because... When you see it through Sherlock Holmes' eyes, I get it. It's cool. It's mysterious. It's creepy. There's a weirdo who knows everything about this place, and there's a maze of weird corridors, and there's that underground sewer filled with smoke. It's like, oh, my God, it all makes sense. Mm -hmm. It's all plausible. I accept it. That's fantastic. It's not like this romantic nonsense where a little girl is brought underground by a creepy monster who can sing real good so that he can hold her captive. I mean, that's still in there, but like, I'm not supposed to relate to her insane nonsense of being romanticized by a monster who kills people with no face, whose only virtue is his ability to sing real good. Yeah, I, I agree that, that the book is really good. Um, and as someone who had no uh, knowledge of Phantom of the Opera beforehand, I, I was kind of riveted. It, it actually made me want to go back and, and read the book, not necessarily watch the play, but, but re- <laughs> read, read the book. Um, so I, I'll have to go do that. Well, Augie, where, where can people find you in your store and all that oh, stuff? Oh, thank you. Uh, we're at 7419 Madison Street in Forest Park. It's almost midway between Harlem Avenue and Des Plaines, or on the north side of the street. And some people call it maroon, but I call it, we have a blood red awning, <laughs> which is yeah. uh, unique. We used to have a green awning, and most of the awnings around here are green. Yeah. But I thought the blood red was... It's slightly coagulated. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then also, too, with the wind, we actually have a ghost that, you know... <laughs> oh, yeah. Visits, um, no, but uh, you have all kinds of activities. So, in other words, there's again a lot of fun you can have with history and uh, Sherlockian. Yeah, the Sherlockian books. We've got you know plenty of those. We've got the Lordy King. We've got some of the latest ones out. Actually, have fantastic ordnance maps of London from 1885. Like someone's going to be giving a talk on Jack the Ripper again, and there's the Tower Hamlets map. And you can see Commercial Road, all the streets that are mentioned in the you know. And it's when it says an ordinance map, it means it was commissioned by the government to mm-hmm. do. Yeah, and uh, that's really cool. That and also what I like the most in those map series are the railroad maps. It has railroads, the trains in London, 
and then it has the trains in you know the whole island you know in, in England so that when you're reading a Sherlockian book or people have written like um, Will Thomas is written a new a new series set at that time and mentions stations where they get off it's just I, I I'm a I'm a picture person I love I can remember better if I have a picture yeah of uh, what I'm studying so I got a variety you know, a variety of things here well, well thank you very much for joining us if, if anyone is in the Chicago area be sure to stop by the bookstore because it's really an amazing place and uh, and it's a bookstore which is hard yeah to which find is, these days. yeah hard to find these days it's always refreshing to see a bookstore so so yeah thank you very much for joining us it was it was great thanks for inviting me Mike and it's great listening to you, Max. As always, uh, you can find us on our other podcast at commentarytrackstars.com or you can find us on Twitter at comtrackstars or email us at comtrackstars at gmail.com or find this show on trek.fm. We will be back next week with our recap on uh, Nicholas Meyer's career as an author. <laughs> <laughs>